Well, when someone tells you something unbelievable, what do you often say back to them? You might say, yeah, right, I'll believe it when I see it. Unless you see it with your own eyes, you're not going to buy it. They can describe it, they can relate their experience to you, but unless you lay your own eyes on it, you won't believe. Your friend tells you, hey, I swear, I just saw a UFO. It was up there, it was spinning around, and then it just vanished. It was there, I swear, I saw it. And you probably say, yeah, right, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. I think there's even whole TV shows today where camera crews follow people around while they're trying to hunt down Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster. And I hope that you say along with me about those things that, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. I don't know, maybe you already believe. But let's face it, to us, vision, it's the top test of truthfulness. If you can't see something with your eyes, you, you doubt that it's real. That's why we can all empathize with poor Thomas. And you probably remember the story where after the resurrection, he was the only one who didn't see Jesus visibly raised at first. So they all told him about it. Hey, Jesus has risen from the dead. And he essentially responded, well, I'll believe it when I see it. I need to see it and touch it. Even though we could say Thomas needed more faith, we can all empathize because we too just so desperately want to see to believe. It's so much easier. Just show me and then I'll believe. But of course, we are called to believe some things without seeing them. God himself is unseen. Jesus is now unseen. We're still called to believe. Some would say this is a simple definition of faith. Faith is believing things that you can't see. And that's not really totally true, but we could run with that. Along those lines, you have to realize, though, that every single worldview requires faith, requires you to believe something that you can't see. No one alive has seen Buddha or Muhammad or Joseph Smith. And even the atheist who sits on his supposed intellectual high horse, claiming he's much too enlightened to believe or to rely on something as childlike as faith, even he is still required to believe many things that he will never see and that cannot be seen. Despite all their theories about the origin of the universe and life, they they weren't there. They will never see their Big Bang. So everyone's in the same boat. We're all left to evaluate the truth claims of every worldview with our minds. Not with our eyes, but with our minds. Every worldview requires faith, requires believing in the unseen. And from here, of course, we could spend all of our days just arguing over this. We could try and tear down every other worldview. We could build up the biblical worldview and and try and prove that. Of course, it's not where we want to do today. It's not where we're headed. I just bring this up to make the simple point that, that God knows this. God is aware that faith is required for everyone. He he designed it this way. Back in the Garden of Eden, faith was not required. You want to know that God exists? He's right there. God made himself in some way visibly known to them. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. But after our fall into sin, we were removed from God's special presence. We could no longer see him or, or be with him in that way. We couldn't go near. We were lost. God could have left us that way, lost and helpless, blind. But he chose to redeem. And in that process, he chose to reveal himself to man once again. We used to be just right there. We're far away. And as he draws him back to, draws us back to himself, he, he reveals himself. But how does he do that now? Does he reveal himself visibly, per se? I mean, he could have provided all the proof of himself that he wanted, or if he wanted He could still be walking around. He could arrange all the stars to spell out, hello, I'm here. He could 
visibly just show up at everyone's doorstep and just zap you. He could do anything if he wanted, but he hasn't. That doesn't mean he requires a blind faith. No, not at all. It's just that God has chosen to furnish this proof of himself through his word. Through his word. God God gave his word to man. And that's all the proof you need. It doesn't go through the eyes. It goes through the mind. But it's all the proof you need. See it, read it, study it yourself. You will find God in it. You will find his son. But in God's wisdom, he's chosen to withhold visible proof or confirmation. You've got to believe now without seeing with your eyes. Like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, Now we walk by faith, not by sight. However, it won't always be this way. We won't always live in the realm of faith. One day, our faith will turn to sight. One day, Christ will return, and as Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says, on that day, He will be seen by all. And on that day, those who did not believe in Him will mourn when they see Him, because they know He's coming to judge. But on that day, those who believed in him without seeing, they will rejoice when they see him because they know they are going to be saved. And for us now as believers in the unseen, that's our anticipation. What do we look forward to? To seeing the Lord return. To seeing the Lord. We look forward to, as the hymn goes, the day when faith becomes sight and prayer becomes praise. And perhaps to help us in this anticipation, there's a few passages in Scripture where God lifts the veil. Although we still can't see, we're just beholding the world. word. Still, it's, it's a powerful preview of what's to come. God sometimes, in the Bible, reveals himself to us, and he temporarily, through the words of Scripture, lets faith be transcended by sight. And we just so happen to have one of those passages before us today. Would you grab your Bibles now and open them to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we're starting this new chapter, and we find, though, another crucial event in Christ's life. You may have heard of it before. It's called the Transfiguration. The Transfiguration. We just hit the halfway point in Mark's Gospel. And it really does divide the book into two. More than that, the middle of Mark, everything at the end of chapter 8, the beginning of chapter 9, just that middle section, it's really the focal point of Mark's gospel. It's like a magnifying glass. The light all gets focused in the middle and, and lasered in. It burns the brightest at the center. And so it is with Mark. That The focus here is, is to burn into your mind the truth about the identity of Jesus, and the mission of Jesus, and the way of Jesus. And for the past three weeks, we've labored to really understand this from the end of Mark chapter 8. We saw the disciples finally came to confess that Jesus, he's he's the Christ. He is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. And that was music to their ears. Because that meant he was going to restore Israel. He's going to judge the nations. He's going to set up the kingdom. The kingdom has got to be close. Jesus, here's the king. He's the Messiah. Kingdoms, it's going to come. So they're excited, but but then Jesus floors them when he tells them that instead, the Messiah must first suffer and be rejected, 
than be killed. This was so incomprehensible to them. The Messiah can't die. How's he going to overthrow Rome and restore Israel if he's dead? It's so out of sync with everything that Peter believed that he decided it was appropriate to rebuke Jesus. Jesus, you, you don't, you must be mistaken. This can't be. He rebukes him. And in return, Jesus delivers a, a stinging counter rebuke. Essentially says to P- Peter, look, if, you, if you're going to stand in my way to the cross, then you're standing with Satan because this is God's will. This is the way. Now I want you just to imagine the crushed spirits of the disciples at this point. At first, their spirits were soaring because they had found the Messiah. They confirmed Jesus was the Messiah. That meant glory was close. They were close to seeing that kingdom glory. But then their spirits were crushed when Jesus tells them that, well, first he's got to suffer and die. And to them, all they heard was, there's no glory coming. There's just defeat. We're going to lose, even us. The wind was taken out of their sails. They were lost. They were disillusioned. doesn't make sense. And seemingly to make matters worse, Jesus then gives them, right after that, some more hard-to-swallow news. This is hard to take. He not only tells them who he really is, what he really came to do, but then he tells them what it really looks like to follow him. You might remember from last week, he told them, just in short, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. In essence, he's telling them not only was the Messiah to suffer and die, but so were they. It was going to cost them their entire lives if they wanted to follow him. They'd have to give up self and live for him. What you have to realize is that for the disciples, they were obsessed with glory. They, they so desperately wanted to behold God's glory and, and see it manifested and participate in that kingdom glory. They want the glory. That's why they're always bugging Jesus. They want his power over demons. They want to sit on his right and his left. They argue among themselves who among them is the greatest. They, they just want to be on top. They want glory, even for themselves. And that's it's not necessarily wrong. It's not necessarily a bad thing to want to behold God's glory, to desire it. But they just needed to learn how you get there. And Jesus fills them in. You, you want that glory? That's fine. But you just have to realize that you've got to suffer first. The path to glory goes through the road of, or the territory of suffering. The cross comes before the crown. And the more glory you want, the more of a cross you're going to get. Living for self certainly won't get you there. Jesus presents them several paradoxes to show them that the the kingdom is is greater than they think. He He tells them the way up is the way down. You want to be the greatest of all? You have to be the servant of all. You want to save your life? You're going to have to lose it. He presents to them radical discipleship. It's not this easy believism. It's, it's a radical discipleship. And he sets the bar for following him really, really high. It's high. Where, where's the promise for health and wealth and prosperity in this life? There's no promise. You may have it. You may not. There's no promise. Instead, what he does promise is that if you truly follow him, you'll get a cross, and some persecution, suffering, 
a denial of self. And you can imagine that with every word, it's like the disciples were sinking lower and lower in their chair. Their heads start to droop down. It's like a dark cloud forms over them. They're just depressed. This isn't what they had in mind. Before, their eyes were wide with excitement over the Messiah and the coming glory. But now all they had to look forward to was suffering and and death. Just It's not what what they were thinking was going to come. But Jesus isn't finished. This this isn't the whole story. It doesn't end here. You can't just stop at the end of Mark chapter 8. His path to the cross doesn't replace his path to glory. In fact, the whole point he's going to try and get through to them is that his path to glory goes through the path to the cross. They're the same path. And that glory, look, it's, it's still coming. It's still coming. And he alludes to this at the very end of chapter 8, verse 38, where he says, the Son of Man will return in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He will be that conquering king. He will come to deliver his people in power and glory. And his true disciples, they can look forward to that return. They will share and partake in that glory. The cost of following Jesus is extremely high. It's your entire life. But the reward for following Jesus is also extremely high. It's eternal life. And he wants you to see both. What Jesus says at the end of Mark chapter 8 about discipleship, it's hard. It's a hard sell. He tells it like it is. He doesn't want people claiming to follow him under the wrong pretenses. It's requiring a lot. And for the disciples, especially knowing what they were expecting, it knocks the wind out of their sails. And so put yourself in their shoes. What do they need right now? After all these hard words and harsh realities, sounds like they need some encouragement. Sounds like they just need to be lifted up. They need to understand, as hard as it sounds, this, this is God's plan. Be assured, this is God's plan. And they need to realize that suffering and glory aren't incompatible. That one leads to the other. But better than this, better than just understanding this, they need to see this. It would really help if they could see this maybe with their eyes. And it's no coincidence that right after these difficult words, the disciples witness visibly the coming glory of Jesus at the transfiguration. If their batteries were drained by his hard words on discipleship, the transfiguration, it charges them back up because they see the plan of God in a profound and powerful way with with their eyes that supposed ultimate test. And today we want to witness this momentous event for ourselves. We want to behold the transfiguration in Scripture. We want to see what, what, what took place, what was so encouraging about it, so instructive about it. What, what was it? It all starts in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And really it's just a continuation of everything at the end of Mark chapter 8. Pretend like there's no chapter division and we're just reading straight through because that's how it was given. And let's see what happens starting now in Mark chapter 9 verse 1. 
And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now this is quite the mysterious statement. Jesus is talking to the disciples and, and the crowd right before this, and he uses this pretty common Hebrew figure of speech, basically telling them that some of you here, not all of you, but some of you here are going to see the kingdom in power. And to this, they're probably thinking, oh, that's, that sounds more like it. That's what we're talking about. Forget all that suffering and death stuff. Let, let's, let's see that. Let's see the kingdom come in power. But what was Jesus really talking about? And amidst all the debate, you can't deny the simple link that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make. And that right after this verse, right after Jesus predicts this, it's the very next thing that happens in all three of those Gospels. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain, and what? He is transfigured before them. His glory is on display. And the point is, this, this is it. This is what it looks like for the kingdom to come in power. It looks like Christ glorified. The kingdom is most visible in its king. And they get to see the king glorified. But, this is only a preview. This glory would characterize Jesus after his resurrection. It would characterize him at his return. But for now, they were just going to get a taste. They were going to get a preview. But still, it was, it was quite a good taste. And now it's our turn. Up to this point, hopefully not, but you might be a little bit lost. You might be thinking, what, what's all this transfiguration business? What does that mean? And so far, we've had to cover some essential background to get you ready for this. But now it's time for us to get our taste and to behold this transfiguration event for ourselves. What really took place on that mountain? What happened? What did they see that was so meaningful and special and, and encouraging and instructive? And it's time for us to find out. There are four main characters in the rest of the passage, verses 2 through 8. And we're going to watch and observe each one as we go through. So by way of an outline, we'll begin with this. Number one, Jesus changes. We first watch as, number one, Jesus changes. And we continue in verse 2. Right after this somewhat mysterious saying, we read this. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now stop there for a second. We're starting off with a change of scenery. Right before this, Jesus was with the twelve in the villages surrounding Caesarea Philippi. And six days have passed since his big reveal when he told them about suffering and dying. And it's probably a rough week for the disciples. But they needed to... Get, get with the program because these are the guys who are going to lead the church when he's gone. And Peter, James, and John especially need to get with the program because these three are going to lead the twelve when he's gone. So they need, to get, they need to get this. And so Jesus invites just the three on a little trip. And we've already seen Peter, James, and John form an inner circle with Jesus. 
These three were the only ones allowed to see Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. These three will be the only ones allowed to accompany him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prays. And these three here are the only ones invited up the mountain. Three is a magic number, of course, because as the Old Testament says, it's by the mouth of two or three witnesses that a fact must be confirmed. And, and their eyewitness testimony was needed because these were some hard-to-believe events. And after the fact, they would testify. But at the moment, Jesus takes them on a, a little hike. He brings them up a high mountain. And it's no understatement. Now, almost certainly this was Mount Hermon, which is in the vicinity. And that mountain rises to 9,200 feet. You can see it from really far away in the land of Israel. And it, almost year-round, it's covered with snow in the, in the area. This time, it's summertime, though, so it wouldn't have been. But just to bring in some other information from the, the parallel gospel accounts, we learn that this climb must have taken them all day. And by the time they get up around the top, it's nightfall. Night comes upon them. And they begin to pray. That was the first expressed purpose of the trip. This was supposed to start off as being a, a prayer trip. So they're on the mountain. They're praying at nighttime. And then what happens to the disciples? What would happen to you if you prayed late at night after a long day? You'd fall asleep. And that's what they did. They fell asleep just like they would in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here also they fall asleep, we learn in Luke but something wakes them up. And this is where we continue in Mark. After they're led up the high mountain by themselves, it continues in verse 2 and it says, And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And can you just imagine you wake up to this? The, the pitch black night, there's no lights. Just get transformed into day by this just brilliant and, and radiating light. And what is it? It's Jesus. He's changed. He's transfigured. And that's our word, transfiguration. The word in Greek is metamorpho, which you can guess we get our word metamorphosis from. You know what this means. Meta means change. Morphe in Greek means form. It's a change in form. You learn in first grade. So that the little caterpillar turns into the, the beautiful butterfly. It's metamorphosis. It's transfiguration. And in a similar way, Jesus changed form, outward appearance. He was transfigured. And in what ways did he change? His nature didn't change. His appearance changed and starts with his clothes. Mark tells us he started glowing. His robe, his cloak was lighting up like a light bulb. And Mark makes it clear, it's not, just, it's not that his, his robe turned white. And you could do that with some bleach. Now this was, this was he was glowing. He was, he was lighting up. He was radiating light. And even more than this, Matthew tells us that his face also started to shine and glow. You know, when you heat up some metal, it turns orange. But when you superheat it, it turns white. It's that white hot glow. And that's like his face right now is just glowing white, brilliant, radiating light. It's like the sun. Matthew says his face shone like the sun. And we all know the glory of the sun. You can't even stare into it for a second. You're just turned away. And at this point, the other sun was glowing and, and showing off its glory. And so you wonder, well, what's going on? What's happening here? 
Is it like a light show? Is this a magic show? Well, no, this is, this is what it looks like for Jesus to reveal himself. He is revealing his glory. This is the glory that he had before the world was. This is the glory that he will display when he returns. During the incarnation, this glory was veiled. It had to be for him to be with and to be like men. But at this moment, this veil was lifted and his glory was seen with the eyes. It was visibly seen. At the same time, it's already, it's already clear that Jesus, in this whole event, he's channeling some Old Testament imagery. Because this whole deal, it's very reminiscent of Moses back in Exodus 24, where God invited him up Mount Sinai to be with him, to give him the word, the law. And it was on that mountain after a six-day period, just like the transfiguration, that the glory cloud of God descended on that mountain and in a special way, Moses was with God. And do you remember how that affected Moses? It changed him. And do you remember how? As he came down the mountain, his face was glowing. He too was glowing like a light bulb, so much that people were afraid. So what did he have to do? He had to put a veil on his face. This is all so similar to what Jesus, what's going on with Jesus. The main difference is that for Moses, the light didn't come from him. It wasn't his glory. It was a reflected glory. It's like he was, he was like the moon, merely reflecting the glory of the sun. But with Jesus, it's his glory. It's his light. The light is coming from him. He is the sun. This is his glory because he is the son of God. And to be with man, he too must put on the veil. But here in the transfiguration, we're watching the veil. Just just be lifted just for a moment. That's what's happening here. It's his glory being unveiled. In all, it's very, it's very fitting that Jesus channels some mosaic imagery because he also gets some special visitors. The second character that is in this unfolding scene, it's really a pair of characters, a pair of visitors. So secondly, we watch as visitors converse. First, Jesus changes. Secondly, visitors converse. We see that in verse 4. While he's being transfigured, verse 4 says, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. This is very interesting. You know immediately, this is not some chance encounter. It's not like Moses and Elijah just happened to be hiking on the same mountain and they ran into Jesus. No, these guys have both been dead for 1,400 and 900 years, respectively. But here they are, alive and well, and they're talking with Jesus. How can that be? Well, you have to remember death is merely the beginning of the next life. These two, when they went to be with the Lord, they were in heaven with God. They still await their future resurrection, but here they're being sent back to earth in some visible form for a special task. And what's their task? Well, they're going to go talk to Jesus. That's it. It's kind of a long journey just for a talk, but they're here to talk with Jesus. And what are they talking about? They're talking about the cross. The death of Jesus. 
It becomes very clear in Luke. Luke chapter 9, verse 31 tells us they were speaking of Christ's departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. It means his death. The word for departure there, it's the same word used for the exodus. And that also is very fitting because Christ, his death was like the new Passover. And he would be leading his people on a new exodus to the new promised land, heaven. Now, other than that, we don't know what they were saying. We don't know the content of their conversation. But we do know what the disciples were saying at this point. They weren't saying anything. They were quiet. They were just watching as glowing Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah. Now, it's an age-old question. How, or rather as to how, the disciples recognized that these two guys were Moses and Elijah. And when they just see two guys... How did they know that's Moses and Elijah? The text doesn't say, I mean, these guys have been dead for so long, there's no way they just recognize them by sight. Were they wearing name tags? Did their names come up in conversation? Did they introduce themselves? We don't know. Most likely, I think they just used their intuition and their knowledge of the Old Testament because every Jew was expecting and waiting for a type of Moses and Elijah to return. If you're wondering what I mean, both of these figures, Moses and Elijah, were regarded as essential to the Messianic era. Moses himself prophesied, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, he said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. And most of the Jews believed that the Messiah would be that prophet. That prophet would be the Messiah. A Mosaic prophet. And regarding Elijah, everyone knew he was going to come back right before the Messiah. Both Moses and Elijah, the only verse they ever appear together in the Old Testament, it's the last two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. God says to the people, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statues and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. He says, verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So, bottom line, in one way or another, the disciples would not have been surprised to see Moses and Elijah there, however they found out who they were. They're not surprised. They were excited. They would have been very excited excited why because they're thinking this is it this this must be it this must be the beginning of the kingdom this is the glory we've been waiting for i mean you've got moses you've got elijah and then there's jesus and he's he's glorified this this is it the kingdom must be here everything jesus said about suffering and dying He must have been talking about something else. But this is what we're talking about. This is the kingdom coming in glory and power right now. But that wasn't quite the case. The disciples still have things backwards. They're still a bit confused. There are a third character now, the three disciples. We've watched as Jesus changes, visitors converse. Thirdly, now we see the disciples confuse We watch as the disciples confuse things. And look at verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. 
Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. And Peter just can't keep quiet. He feels compelled to say something in the moment. So he brings up this business about tabernacles. And you're probably wondering, what's he talking about? What's a tabernacle? What does he mean? Well, this tabernacle that he's talking about, it's like a little tent or booth or hut. Some makeshift shelter made out of branches of trees. And the question is, why, why is he wanting to build them, tabernacles? Some suggest Peter's channeling the, the concept of the Old Testament tabernacle where God met man. Others see a reference to the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. That's what a feast the Jews celebrated. And by this time, it had become associated with the Messianic era, this new exodus. But most likely, it seems Peter wants to set up these three structures simply because he wants them to stay. He wants Moses and Elijah and Jesus just to stay there with him. He wants to set up the Messianic headquarters right here, right now. All this talk of suffering and death, let's just pretend that never happened. Let's just stay right here and just get the glory started. And this really is supported in Luke where we learn that Peter, he didn't pipe up and say this until it became clear that Moses and Elijah were about to leave. They were about to, to go away, to leave. And so he, he didn't want that. He, he needed them to stay. They were needed for the establishment of the kingdom. So as they're about to leave, he's like, hey, don't, don't leave. Look, well, I'll build you guys three tabernacles, one for each of you, and you can stay. You just, we'll get you all set up. But just don't leave. He wants them to stay because he wants the glory to come right now. But Peter didn't really know what he was saying. One way or another, he didn't know what he was saying. He was stupefied by everything he saw, bewildered. He just woke up. The picture is that he's babbling without really thinking. And one mistake he makes, whatever his intentions, was that he puts Jesus and Moses and Elijah on a level playing field. Like, we need all three of you to bring this, to get this kingdom started. But Moses and Elijah aren't on the same level as Jesus. And the last time Peter spoke out of turn, he was corrected and rebuked by Jesus. And this time, he gets corrected and rebuked by God the Father. And we see the last character in this episode. It's God himself. And we watch now as God clarifies. God clarifies. And look at verse 7. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This was not a rain cloud. This was not a fog cloud. Loud voices don't tend to come from rain clouds or foggy mountains. This was a special cloud. We've seen this special cloud before, haven't we? And what do you know? Back in the day of Moses, God manifested himself before the people in a cloud. It's called the Shekinah glory cloud. The cloud went before them in the wilderness, rested on the tabernacle, it filled the temple. This cloud signified God's special presence with his people. This was a a little manifestation of his glory with them in their midst. But you may remember as the nation turned away from God, what happened to the cloud? It went away. 
We learn in Ezekiel, the last time we see this glory cloud of God, and it's pictured as departing from the temple because of their apostasy. And by Christ's day, this cloud has not been seen for 600 years. It's the stuff of legend now. But here it is. The cloud is back. And they don't just see it. They're in it. Just like Moses was enveloped by the same cloud. They're inside. And have you ever been inside a cloud? You're in an airplane, you go through a cloud, or you're up in a high mountain. Probably wasn't like being inside this cloud. This was a frightening cloud. A cloud where you knew there's someone else here. God was in the midst of this cloud. No form was seen, but a voice was heard. And what did that voice say? Verse 7, God said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Right here, at this point, culmination when God opens his mouth. This is where we really start to see the significance of this whole episode unfold. We learned all throughout the end of Mark chapter 8 that Jesus was revealing the truth about his identity, his mission, his way. And everything he said was very hard to swallow. It's hard to swallow. But we learn now that the transfiguration, what comes right after, well, you could say that this is the sugar that helps the medicine go down. Everything he said was so hard to believe, but here's something to make it a little easier to believe. Here's the transfiguration. This entire event was orchestrated in large part to testify visibly to the top disciples that everything God said, or rather everything Jesus said, was true. You should probably listen to him because it was true. I want us to just take a little bit of time to explore this further. How How is it that this event, this transfiguration, confirms all those hard words that Jesus said. Let's start with his identity. And you've got the identity, the mission, the way of Jesus. Start with his identity. What did they learn just before? That he was the Christ, the Son of God. But when he starts talking about suffering and death, even that gets cast into doubt. Because the Messiah can't suffer and die. But, so as to remove all doubt, God shows up and he testifies about Jesus. And what does he say about Jesus? He says, this is my son. This is my beloved son. And when you want your proof that Jesus is the divine Messiah, the son of God, there you have it. They just heard God say, despite Jesus saying he's got to suffer and die, he's still, he's still the son. There's your proof. God, his voice testifying. This is my son. And in addition, let's not forget that Jesus visibly was displaying his glory. That's an important proof for them because Jesus, did he give off evidence that he was the son of God? Yeah, he did. He talked like God. He taught like God. He acted like God. He worked wonders like God, miracles of God. But one thing was missing. It didn't look like God. Visually, you wouldn't know I just walked past God. From the outside, he looked like another man, didn't he? This was certainly on purpose. He had to veil his glory as a part of the incarnation, like Moses had to wear that veil. But during the transfiguration, the disciples finally saw that veil lifted. And it was, it was the picture was complete. He acted like God. He talked like God. Now he looks like God. He is visibly glorified. That's the total package. He is who he says he is. 
So now you can see how this event, this transfiguration, was powerfully confirming to the three disciples, Jesus, he really is who he says he is. He really is the Christ and the Son of God. Let it be confirmed. So first, it confirms his identity. Secondly, this event confirms his mission. You remember, I mean, we've said it so many times, the bombshell he dropped on the twelve, telling them for the first time the Messiah has got to suffer and die. Now it's inconceivable. They're thinking that that can't be God's plan. There's no way that's God's plan. But the transfiguration was again intended to sweep away those doubts. I want you to think back to Moses and Elijah. Why were they there? And why those two? Why not David and Isaiah? That seems like a good pair. But you have to realize that Moses and Elijah were a very special pair. Both of them conversed with God on a mountain. Both of them beheld a form of God's glory. Both had very famous departures from this earth. Both performed miracles just like Jesus. Both were servants of God. Moses was the great law giver. Elijah, the great law defender. And on top of all this, Moses and Elijah were seen by the Jews to represent the law and the prophets. You might know that the Jews, they split up their Old Testament in the basic sense into two parts. You've got the law, first five books, and then the prophets. I mean, you can say everything else. And who gave the law? Moses. Who's the greatest prophet? Elijah. And so who are Moses and Elijah to the Jews? The law and the prophets. In other words, this is God's word. It's the Old Testament. And so what do we have here? We have Moses and Elijah, literally. The law and the prophets. And what are they doing? They're agreeing with Jesus about his mission, that he has to die. Did you catch that significance there? They are supporting his mission. They're essentially testifying that, hey, look, your, your path to the cross is good with us. It's part of God's Old Testament plan. Jesus going to the cross, it's not a deviation from the Old Testament plan. This is the Old Testament plan. And the law and the prophets have literally shown up to agree this is God's plan. That's some pretty strong proof to some Jews who would have understood this, this fact. You remember, what was the great stumbling block for the Jews? It was the fact that Jesus, the supposed Messiah, suffered and died. Couldn't accept that. It's not possible. That's not God's plan. But what if you could show them from their own Old Testament that that's, that's part of the plan? Look, it's, it's here in the Law and the Prophets. He's supposed to suffer and die. If you could show them that, then the stumbling block would be removed. And that's what's happening with Peter and the disciples. They stumbled over the block. But this is being removed for them. And by the way, every time the apostles went to evangelize some Jews in the early church, this is what they said. This is how they argued. It's like Paul in Acts 17. He reasons with the Jews from scriptures, verse 3, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer. Every time he sees Jews, he first and foremost has got to say from the Old Testament, you know, guys, the Christ had to suffer. Here, look in your word, the Law and the Prophets. One of the reasons the Jews rejected Jesus is because they thought he didn't line up with the Law and the Prophets. But they were very mistaken. And here, Moses and Elijah literally show up to agree 
that God's plan includes the Messiah's suffering. No one could bring more assurance that this was God's plan than these two people, Moses and Elijah. So now you can see, secondly, this was for these disciples proof of the Messiah's mission. As hard as it was to swallow, this this was God's will. Moses agrees. Elijah agrees. God is agreeing. I mean, what more can you ask for? The stumbling block was removed, and the transfiguration showed the disciples that Christ's mission of suffering was not incompatible with his glory. And that's their problem. But he's saying, look, they're not incompatible, suffering and glory, but they go together. Lastly, we can see how the transfiguration is given to prove the way of Jesus. It confirms the identity of Jesus. It confirms the mission of Jesus. Lastly, it confirms the way of Jesus. You remember from the very end of chapter 8, he gave them the call. He says, you've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. That's what it looks like. You've got to lose your life to save it. That too was very hard to swallow. They were expecting glory. But now they're told to deny self and suffer and die. I mean, can this really be the way? Is that the right way? And the transfiguration is given to say, yeah, it's the right way. You better listen to him. God, when when God shows up, he doesn't just say, this is my beloved son. But what does he say after that? Listen to him. Don't listen to Moses and Elijah. Listen to him. Not to say that Moses and Elijah are negated, but like Jesus said, he doesn't come to overturn the law and the prophets. He comes to fulfill. And so God says, listen to him, which means to obey. A lot of people had heard Jesus, but very very few were listening to him. And of course, this includes everything he had just said about being his disciple. You want to be a disciple? Well, you better listen to him. And it's at this point that Moses and Elijah fade away. Look at the final verse. Let's finish this up in verse 8. All at once they looked around and they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. This event goes to show that glory is coming for Jesus, for the saints, for the disciples. They will share in this glory, but not yet. Not yet. Though it's hard to accept, they need to listen to Jesus when he says that the road to glory goes through suffering. You've got to get there first. To endure, they must not live for themselves. They must live for him, follow him wherever it takes them. Only then will they share in his glory at a future day. It's just like Paul says in Romans 8, verses 17 through 18. Listen to this. He says, We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if, indeed, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And then the famous verse, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. They figured it out eventually. The disciples essentially needed to take Jesus at his word that this was true. Is this really the way 
You're telling us to follow you on this way. Is this really the way, the way of suffering? That's the way to glory. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. Listen to him. For the moment, the glory was gone. Jesus took the veil, put the veil back on. All their hopes of instant glory had vanished. The kingdom was not going to come right now. The kingdom would come later in power. This was just a preview. And they learned that Jesus, I guess he was serious when he said that the cross must come before the crown for him and for them. But the best part of it all is that when everyone disappears, Jesus is still there. He doesn't go away. He could have. You know, if he wanted to, he could have just, at this point, he could have said, you know, I'm just going to skip the cross and just go to glory. He could have done it. But he did not. He stayed. He remained. He will walk with them on this way. He will lead the way. He will suffer and die first for them. And they too need to realize this is their way. Bottom line, they just need to trust and follow. At this point, they've got their proof, but it's no longer seen. Now just trust and follow. And here's where the application hits home for us because it's the same lesson. We too are called just to trust and follow. This is the simple exhortation you need as you too accept that call. Deny self, pick up your cross, follow him. Is that really the way? It's the way. Trust and follow. As we already learned, contrary to so many TV preachers, Jesus never promises health, wealth, prosperity in this life. Hey, you may, you may get all three, that's great, but there's no promise. The promise is for a cross, suffering, and death to self for his sake. And that's a lot. It's hard words. It's a high cost. It's hard to swallow. Nobody wants this. Everyone wants a good life. Everyone wants glory right now. But following Jesus is hard. You've got to lose this life to gain the next. He says, you can't live for your own will. You live for his will. It's hard. But you too need to be lifted up and encouraged and reassured by the transfiguration. Put yourself in their shoes. This is confirmation. This is it. This is the way. He is who he said he is. He did what he said he was going to do. And now this is the right way. This is the way to glory. The glory that he displayed, this is the glory he will manifest when he returns. This is the glory you will share on that day. But not right now. For now, you're just called to trust and follow. You might be tempted to say, yeah, but where's my proof? Peter, James, and John, they got to see the glory with their own eyes. So where's my, I want some visual proof that this is true. And the reality is, you don't get visual proof. You don't, you won't. You are called to faith, just like we learned at the beginning. Every worldview requires you to believe some things without seeing them. You're not going to see the transfiguration if you go hyping up Bishop Peak. You're not going to see it with your eyes. You are left to evaluate truth with your mind, not with your eyes. And if you are still spiritually blind, you won't see it. But if your eyes are open, God has left you a sufficient testimony. You don't need a mystical experience to know this is true. You don't need a supernatural vision to know this is true. Those can be deceiving. Those fade away. All the proof you need is the clear word of God. 
The transfiguration, it was an amazing experience. And it served an important purpose. But you know what's even more amazing? It's the fact that later in life, Peter, as he was reflecting back, he came to understand that as great as the transfiguration was, you know what's even more sure and more reassuring to him? It's the word. The word that remains. Listen to this. We actually studied this when we preached through Second Peter, but I'll read it for you. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. It says, Peter, he's writing at the end of his life, and as you can tell, he's talking about the transfiguration. That's what he's talking about. In Second Peter 1, he says this. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he's talking about the mountain. Verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, quote, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. He's talking about the mountain. Verse 18, he says, And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him, on the holy mountain. This is the transfiguration. He's saying this was amazing. We, we saw the glory with our eyes. We didn't make this up. We saw this. We're eyewitnesses. We heard this. We're ear witnesses. We, just, we saw the glory. He's God's son. What does he say in the next verse, verse 19? He says, So then, we have the prophetic word made more sure, or rather, the more sure prophetic word, to which you do well to pay attention to as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. What's his takeaway? He's talking to Christians, to the church, and he's talking about this amazing experience, which for him confirms so much. But his message is, it's not, now you guys need to go out, you need to seek the same experience. You need a vision. You need to see the light. You've got to go find Jesus on a mountain somewhere. He doesn't say that. He says, for you, well, you've got the more sure prophetic word. You've got the word. It's all you need. And it's more sure than our vision. Our vision was amazing, but it's gone. The word's still here, and it's clear. And you have it. It's all you need. So he says, pay attention. Pay attention to the word like a lamp shining in a dark place. It's all you need. The point is, visions can come and go. Experiences come and go. But God's word remains true forever it's the testimony that it's all that you need so again all that's left is for you to trust and follow jesus is the lord he is coming back in glory that glory will be for all who are found on his way so i pray that you are found on his way let's pray together And Father in heaven, you are the God of all glory. You are the majestic glory, and we praise you. Although we weren't there through the eyes of Scripture, we can imagine this scene, and and it would have been breathtaking and, and terrifying, but amazing to behold the Son of God becoming like the Son, glorified. We we step back at this, we are in awe of this. We believe this, we know this is true, this is his glory. And it will be displayed for all to see when he returns. We believe. Though we don't see, Lord, everyone has to have faith in something. Our faith is in you. 
And we are not fools for that. Your word is true and sure, and we rest our faith on it and on you and on your son. And so we now anticipate the day coming when, when the glory comes for us. We will be rescued by the glory. We pray that day comes quickly. We pray we keep our eyes set on that, anticipating the return and the life we have. But for now, while we're still in the darkness, still in the mire of this world, Lord, I pray that this vision of future glory lifts us up and keeps us going. It confirms to us we're on the right track. Though it's hard, though we must deny self and pick up our cross to follow the Lord, it's the right way. Because he too encountered great suffering before that glory could be openly manifested again. The same, true is, the same is true for us. So encourage our hearts and pray for any here who are suffering right now for you or enduring hardship in the Lord that they, that they keep going, keep walking the rock and running the race. This is the right way. And may we all set our, our mind toward heaven and looking for our Lord to come back for us or us to go to be with him. Lift our time up to you in praise as always. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.